Game of Thrones, Oathbreaker is over, but we are just getting started answering your feedback questions here on the Game of Thrones post-show recap. And now, here are the two guys who always take Sir Davos's advice and are here to fail and fail again. I'm Rob Sister, and here's Josh Wiggler. Josh, how are you? I'm great. Oh, man. It's more than a failing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I didn't really have a response to that. I failed in my response to your comment about failing. <laughs> More than a feedback. More than a feedback. <laughs> yeah. All right. Anyway, Josh, how's your Game of Thrones week going? Oh, it's going well. It's fun. It's been a good week, a little bit quieter. Uh, you know, no one came back to life this week, so there wasn't any sort of big emergency buttons Take that, that I had Ollie. to push. Take that, Ollie. Not yet. I mean, listen, who knows what's going to happen F next Ollie. week? They have to burn the bodies first. Otherwise, we got to be a little worried about what might happen. Oh, you think that the Night's King could come back and raise Ollie back? How incredible incredible would that be if the Night's King storms Castle Black just because Jon Snow left and he raises Alistair Thorne and Bowen Marsh and Mike... And Ollie. White and Ollie. just be the greatest thing. White Ollie. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. It's a nice day for a white Ollie. <laughs> no. The throners are writing themselves. Worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. Yeah. No, it's been good. It's been good. It's been a fun week. Some fun stories. Got a chance to talk to a few people this week, which was really fun. Uh, interviewed Isaac Hempstead Wright about all of the crazy shenanigans happening with Brand and the Tower of you. Joy. Yeah, we're becoming good friends, Isaac and I. I really do think so. It's his exams week this week, so everybody wish him well. Um, he is doing great. I spoke to Art Parkinson, who plays Rickon Stark. Oh, uh, wow. We had a nice, pleasant little chat. He's a, How was know, he? A, he was good. He's like a nice, young, 14-year-old Irishman uh, who is very sad to, to see the dire wolf go, to see Shaggy Dog go. Apparently, he had bonded a lot with the dog named Saxon, who played Shaggy Dog, so he was very upset about that. Of course, uh, you can see everything that Josh is doing for The Hollywood Reporter when you go to THR.com slash Game of Thrones. I got that right? That's right. That's the one. All right. THR.com slash Game of Thrones, or just follow Josh on Twitter. He's at Round Howard. Of course, this is our feedback show where we're going to get into answering all of your many questions that you might have about this episode. Of course, Josh, you are also going to get into the Game of Thrones book club this week. Yeah, that's right. I'm recording with Terry Schwartz in just a couple of hours. Uh, Really fortuitous. I mean, we were supposed to record our book club podcast on Tuesday night this week. We're recording this right now on Wednesday, and the book club podcast will record Wednesday night. And earlier today, Rob, George R. R. Martin, just like Beyonce, dropped a little lemonade. He dropped a, a sample chapter from The Winds of Winter. I did see that, yes. So, so we've got a little new book stuff to talk about this week. Will you have read the whole new chapter by the time you do the book club? That is the goal. I am certainly hopeful that I will be able to do that. I did see that it came out, and then I saw who the chapter was about, and I was like, eh. Who's that? Who's yeah, this? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, because you're listening to the Feast for Crow audiobook. I'm almost but, done. I've got like three hours left. So you're close. But I mean, for people who don't know, there's a character in the books named Ariane Martell, who is, as the last name implies, deeply involved in the Dorne storyline, does not exist on the show. And basically everything that's happening in Dorne in the books 
is not happening on the show and probably never will happen in the same way on the show. So mm-hmm. it's actually a really kind of, you know, it's not a super exciting chapter probably for people who are show first and book second. But I think, you know, it's exciting enough for book first people. Maybe not super exciting because it's still Dorn. Uh, but that being said, I think it's a great testament to the fact that these are still, you know, these are really different beasts ultimately. You yeah. know, whenever we do get that full next book from George R. R. Martin, it's going to be pretty wildly different from a lot of what we're seeing on the show. I really like that. I like that we're kind of at the fork in the road where we're going to get two different experiences. Of course, if you don't want to miss any of our podcasts, including uh, the book club and our next live recap of the show, you can subscribe to the podcast. Go to postshowrecaps.com slash G-O-T iTunes, postshowrecaps.com slash G-O-T iTunes, and your feedback and stark ratings. Very much appreciated. All right. Very important stuff. Where do you want to start our discussion this week? I think we got to start at the wall, as we typically do. Got to start in the far north. We got to start with Jon Snow. My question for you, Rob, when it comes to Jon Snow, do you want to start in the north or the south? Hmm. Again, you're speaking in riddles like the three-eyed raven. Let's put it this way. The north would be, you know, the headier concepts. Where's this storyline going? Talking through Jon's next moves. The south would be tagged NSFW. Hmm. Well, let's start at least on the right foot. All right. So we'll start in the South. Okay. (laughs) So we will take this voicemail from Robert Lanehart. And once again, everybody, NSFW warning. Hey, Robin Josh. This is Robert Lanehart from Salt Lake City, Utah. So this episode had a ton of amazing moments, but none more important than the revelation that Jon Snow has a small pecker. I don't know about you guys, but I am not buying it. All right, he's not buying it. Are you buying this revelation, this game-changing revelation from Tormund Giant Spain that Jon Snow's Valyrian steel is not really all that? I would say... It's more like small claw. This is where you wanted to start this week. (laughs) Uh, I would say that, uh, look, you grit we have on good authority that that there is nothing wrong there, that there is definitely no issue... Jon Snow does not have small hands. Uh-huh. He, has, he has gotten no complaints in that area. Yeah, we've never really heard any complaints. Look, it is very cold there on the wall. Very cold, very cold. Tormund is not being fair. He is not being fair. Maybe he doesn't know about shrinkage, but <laughs> I think that Jon Snow is fine in that department. I think he's fine. I think it was just a joke. He's I think busting Tormund- shoes. He's busting shoes, busting chops. You know, I feel like it's okay. I feel like it's all right. I just wanted to get that out of the way. It's done. It's over. There are no fart jokes in this podcast either. That's your potty humor. That's all we're getting. That's right. Okay. That's it. Uh, Well, speaking of potty, let's take this voicemail from Podrick Racer, uh, who wants to get into a little bit more about what Jon Snow's direction might be moving forward. You said direction, right? (laughs) Hey, guys. Podrick Racer here. I've got a question for you about Jon Snow's next move. You seem convinced that he's going to go south of the wall, but I really hope he goes north of the wall. Stance is kind of the Stark I'm least interested in in Jon hooking up with. So what do you think? Any chance Jon will go north of the wall? All right. Any chance that John goes north of the wall rather than going south? We know from hard home, from basically everything that Jon Snow has been through, that his main story has been winter is coming. The dead are coming. We are going to have to fight these people. Is there any shot that John is just heading straight into that battle as he's leaving the wall here by himself? 
I don't know. It wouldn't be the first time he has left the wall to take on an army all on his own. You know, that is literally what he does in the season four penultimate episode at the end of Watches on the Wall. He marches off towards Mance Raider's army with no backup whatsoever. But that was more um, to sort of like reason with Mance and talk to him. I can't maybe see him. he's going to reason with the Night's King. He's like, you know, we've got a lot in common now. You're dead. I died. I'm back. You're undead. We've got some common ground. I can't see him going there. And again, if you were going to go further north, wouldn't you take all of your clothes with you? I mean, he he left his his small clothes, right? <laughs> his small clothes. I thought we weren't making size jokes anymore. <laughs> Listen, uh, I think he is going south, uh, at least towards Winterfell. You think he's going south towards Winterfell? We had had a question here from Coach who says, now that John has died and come back, could he be headed to join some other famous risers, the White Walkers? You're saying no to this. You don't think that John has any business with the White Walkers, at least not yet. Uh, it does not seem like that that would be someplace he would want to go. It doesn't seem like you could reason with them. It doesn't seem like, I, I mean, do you think that? No, not necessarily. I mean, obviously, I think eventually, of course, 100%, eventually he is going to clash with the White Walkers. I think that Jon Snow right now is decisively the safest character on the show. I think that he is a, a very end-of-the-end-game player. I think that he could die eventually again, but it wouldn't be until like that final two or three episodes of the whole series. And somewhere along the way, now that Jon Snow is back, now that the question is answered, will he or won't he come back, he's here. He is definitely, definitely, definitely leading the charge or being a heavy, prominent player in this war against the White Walkers. But he needs to figure out his stuff first, I think. And I think that that's what we're seeing. And this was probably the most surprising thing about the Jon Snow resurrection for me. And I think for probably a lot of fans, too, is there's been a lot of mythologizing around Jon and a lot of hyping up this character and a lot of wondering what's he going to look like when he returns to the land of the living? Is he going to be this super confident, uh, almost supernatural type of creature? You know, is there something that's going to be really drastically different about him, if not in terms of like chemistry and biology, then at least in terms of the way he's carrying himself, his bravado? I had never really considered that he was going to come back from the dead and be like, Oh man, I was dead. This is so weird and I'm so freaked out right now and I don't know what to do with my life. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he seems really, really taken aback and very weak right now. You know, he's been weakened by this whole ordeal and I think probably weakened even more by what he does to Ollie at the end of this episode. He really doesn't recognize the man in the mirror and he's not excited about what he sees. Does Jon Snow need a gap year? Does he need like a gap season in between when he's going to go off to do what he has to do and sort of like graduating from being dead? Are you saying that Jon Snow leaves the wall in this past episode in Oathbreaker and then we don't see him again until season seven? <laughs> I don't know. If are you putting that out into the universe? Maybe we see him, but does he need like sort of a season just to sort of like uh, figure things out and realize like just sort of travel abroad to Esos and yeah. things like that? Yeah, he's going to hang out in Volantis. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sort yeah. of like, oh, okay. Now I've, you know, I've spent this gap year. Now I'm ready to come back and resume my, you know, fighting of the White Walkers. He's going to hang out with Euron Greyjoy. He's going to have a semester at sea. Mm -hmm. He's going to, he's going to take the silence out. He's going to, he's going to lease that 
Right. Uh, that's not a bad idea. Right. He's sort of like, what, is he 18, 19 years old? They've only, you know, had go one see girlfriend. The world. Yeah, go live a little. <laughs> live a little. You, you know, you're, you think that your life is one thing. You think that you're married to the wall forever. Suddenly, you're alive. You're no longer beholden to these people. Go out there. Go explore. Hey, maybe this is how we get Jon Snow and Daenerys Targaryen to finally meet, because Lord knows she is not coming to Westeros anytime soon. Uh, in all seriousness, though, I think that what's interesting about Jon Snow is that I think that he's lost this motivation. I think that it was an important line that he said about how, you know, I did what I thought was right and I got stabbed in the heart. And I think that that's part of his stark lineage of always do what's right, you know, always keep your honor and that's something that he learned from Ned in terms of like always do the right thing. And he's like, okay, well, I'm going to live my life by that. And that ultimately ended up getting him killed. And there wasn't the seven saying like, oh, Jon Snow, you did such a great job. What right. a, what a fine work you've done. There was no church that was like bathed in light where all of his friends were. Right. No Jacob or anything like no, that telling no. him, like, oh, job well done, Jon Snow. Yeah, it was, you did it. Let's all go together now. So I think that right now he's just like, what's the point? Why am I uh, doing this? For what? For what am I risking my life for? Why aren't I just going out and doing whatever I feel like? So I think he's just going to say, I'm out. And I think what's missing for him is that motivation. And hopefully in the next couple episodes, we are able to find that motivation for him and get him back on board with this mission because he's really like, what's in it for me? Right. Here's actually, you know, on the subject of what he saw after he died. He he tells Melisandre, he tells Davos, I saw nothing. There was nothing there, which is really a frightening prospect. I mean, that's like the big fear. Sopranos ending. You know, that's a big fear for so many people. It's like, is there nothing? Is there really nothing there? Uh, and John, that's what John says. He you says know nothing. He, he knows nothing now. No, and I actually think, you know, that's funny, but it's profound, too. This whole thing that Egret used to say to him all the time, you know nothing, Jon Snow. It's become a pop culture catchphrase. And really now, John knows the true meaning of nothing. Like, he knows that nothing is what comes next. And that's terrifying for him. But this was from Coach who says, if your fate is to die and then become resurrected, couldn't fate choose to show you nothing during your death? And it doesn't necessarily mean there is nothing when you die. Um, so that's a, I, I hadn't really considered the possibility that wherever John went, you know, I really thought that there was just, you know, absolute blackness and absolutely nothing there. But is there something to the idea that John just didn't pass all the way through if destiny had other designs for him? He was just mostly dead. Mostly dead. Yeah. Let's bring the mutton back into this. Sure. I guess so. I think you could argue that point. I think that what it does, though, solidify for us is that we talked about, well, was Jon Snow's consciousness in Ghost? Did he warp into Ghost during that That's time? That's over. That's out. Yeah. I think that that is definitely not. Unless in- Ghost is blind. <laughs> yeah. Uh, unless that is just not in the realm of possibility in the TV show. Maybe that could be the case in the books, but that is not something that we're working with here on the HBO series. I agree completely. Um, some other comments about John. Sir Brendan of House Fitzy had written in, how much did John look like Rob when he first walked out after waking up? And that's Rob with two Bs, not Sabatnik, <laughs> but Stark. Yeah, not you. Uh, but did you did you get a sense of, you know, kind of a Rob Stark vibe when John is brought back out by Davos to be in front of all of the Night's Watch? You know, he's got the shorter hair, that you know, the way that he's wearing his cloak, the way he's carrying himself. There's maybe a little bit of a regal quality to this guy. 
Are you getting King of the North vibes from Jon Snow? I really did not, but I could see what you're saying in terms of that. But I feel like that Rob was not the reluctant king in the same way that Jon seemed to be reluctant with this idea of, here he is, our savior. It's Jon Snow. Right. And I think that he was not super pumped up about it, even like the idea of like being the person to hang uh, Alistair Thorne and Ollie. He didn't seem to take a lot of joy in it. So I feel like that Rob really embraced the role more. So talking about the execution a little bit more, Brendan had also written in, did John do the right thing in executing the mutineers? Mm. Um, I mean, I know, I know Rob, you loved Mm. Ollie. And so you were really sad to see him go. Did John screw up here? I really feel like in the mythos of Game of Thrones, I would say that the answer here is yes. I think that anytime, you know, you're sort of giving sort of like, oh, all right, let me give you a second chance. I think that that has always been something that's a bad idea. So I think that Jon Snow with people that did kill him, I think they did not seem repentant, even Alistair Thorne is like, I pray that I would have this, you know, the wisdom, the strength to do it again. Ali had his resting Ali face the whole time. And so I think that he absolutely made the right decision. Yeah, I think it's interesting. It's really not what I expected. I thought that John would come back. I thought that we would get this moment with him and Alistair Thorne in the cells. And, you know, they would be, they would have this big moment where Alistair Thorne's like, holy crap, you're alive. And John says, like, yeah, I'm alive. I'm here. I'm back. You tried to kill me. It worked for a minute. Now it's done working. I'm here. Let's hang out. Let's go kill these White Walkers together. We need all the able-bodied men that we can get. And Alistair Thorne would be like, all right, I get it. I'm in. I really kind of thought that that's where we were going. Uh, but I think that the, you know, the, the lack of confidence that John has and sort of the trauma that he's wearing, obviously that guy, I do think, makes this move. He's so hung up on the act of murder. He's so hung up on the fact that these people, these specific people betrayed him and killed him that he feels like he has to return the favor. It has to be like his first act coming back. I didn't think that that was the direction we were going to go coming into this week. But seeing, you know, that first couple of scenes with John, seeing those first scenes and seeing how he's reacting to resurrection, I think it falls in line with that attitude. I think it falls in line with the attitude of a guy who's feeling weaker than ever, uh, you know, not only just, you know, spiritually and mentally, but also physically, like he needs to be helped along. You know, he's not a super able-bodied guy right now. I also would be remiss if I did not give you some props back when we did our Game of Thrones season six death draft. Alistair Thorne was somebody on your board. So congratulations, sir, for striking first blood in the Uh, Game of Thrones season six death draft. Wow. I feel honored. I feel humbled. I graciously accept this award there's an award involved right yeah yeah cash prize it's at the throners yeah it's at the throners all right nice something to look forward to yeah i mean i felt like i didn't think that this was the way that thorn would go again like i really thought that there would be some sort of team up between him and john um coming into this week i think into the season what i really expected was just immediate chaos at the wall um, faster than what we ended up getting, really. And I think that when uh, when one one shows up and Tormund and Ed brings them all there, I thought that that was going to be like a ballistic bloodshed moment that Thorne would die in. I didn't think it would be resolved as quickly as it was. Uh, that's really what I thought was going to happen to Thorne. And then coming into this week, into Oathbreaker, I really would have expected that John and Thorne would have some sort of coming together moment 
and he would have been part of the army to go against the White Walkers, and then eventually he would be White Walker food. Yeah. Uh, but I, I felt pretty good about that guy not making it out of this season. All in all, I never really hated Thorne. You know, he was sort of a, not a great guy, but you always felt like his heart was in the right place, that he felt like that he needed to get these guys into shape from when, you know, we've had John first becoming a cadet at the wall and like, you know, really trying to get the troops in gear. You sort of felt like that. He's sort of just like a tough drill sergeant, but his head was in the right place. Felt like that. He really had his best moment during the battle of the wall. And yeah, uh, yeah he really like uh, was on John's side at that point, but you just couldn't get over the wildlings. Hated the wildlings too much, too much, way too much. All right. This is from Emad who wants to talk about the execution a little bit more. If a group of adults induct a child into their agenda and brainwash him into going along with them to stab a man who is aligning himself with said child's parents' murderers, Mm -hmm. is that child guilty enough to be executed? I feel like Ollie was just a confused and misled child, and it was hard to stand by John's decision to brutally execute him. No matter how annoying, death was too harsh of a punishment for Ollie. What do you think about that from Emad? What do you want to do with Ollie? You want to send him to some juvenile delinquent's home? There's no hope for him. I believe that the subject of Emad's email was, is there no juvie in Westeros? <laughs> so you guys are simpatico on that. Um, Where do you want to send him? What do you do? I mean, what do you juvie, do with him? Juvie is the wall. <laughs> yeah, know? he's at the wall. He's, he's the worst juvie. of the worst. Yeah, he is already there. Uh, he is at house juvie at this point. He's at the house. Uh, I don't know. I, I feel like, I think that that's well-reasoned. I think that it makes a lot of sense why Ali did what he did. I think he had a lot of history that was weighing on his mind. He watches his family get killed. He watches not just his family, but everyone he grew up with when his village is attacked by the Thanes back in season four. Um, So he has reason to not be psyched about what's going on here. So I think for Ali to have gone against John the way he did, I get it for John to do what he did. I don't think we're supposed to like it. I think that we only like it because Ali was annoying and Ali did what he did to a character that we really, really loved. Um, but I don't think we're supposed to feel good about the choice that John made against Ali or any of those men necessarily. John certainly doesn't look like he's happy with himself. I think that this is a crossroads for Jon Snow where he has just come back from the dead, has just um, you know, been he's alive due to an actual miracle. And in the, in the twilight of this miraculous moment, he makes a really dark choice. Um, you know, this is not a moment where, you know, they bust out the confetti and the cupcakes and everyone's having a party at Castle Black. It is an execution. It's the very first thing that he does. So I think that speaks a lot to the mindset of John right now. I can't imagine John is doing too well. And I think if you ask John a season from now, if he regrets this choice, he probably regrets it greatly. So I don't think we're supposed to be comfortable with this at all. All right, we'll see. I mean, Ali had chances. He had a great mentor in John. He turned his back on him. He gave in to his hate. And I just don't know where you're going to send Ali. I mean, he's already at the wall. He hates the wildlings. There's, there's nothing else for him to do. I think you can say like, hey, Ali, I'm back. You were wrong. Can you fall in line? And Ali either says, yeah, totally, or he gets hanged. Did you see and that I, scowl on his face the whole time? He wasn't like, John, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm yeah. so I'm so repentant. No, he yeah. was looking, he looked like he was ready to do it again. Uh, maybe. Once he tasted know. blood, put him down. <laughs> oh, that's God, it. That's there was no hope for Ollie. 
All right, Brendan says, so is Sansa about to get to the wall and John won't be there now? How annoying is that? <laughs> Sounds very uh, Game of Thrones. It does sound Game of Thrones, but I'm still struggling with like the mechanics of how that works. I, I know that there's, you know, it's a great expansive area between Winterfell and the wall. It's not a direct line. It's not like you're going to leave the wall and walk toward Winterfell and you are guaranteed to cross somebody coming from Winterfell. Many different ways to wander around up there. In don't the you north. think there's one main road? I feel like there's one main road, but don't you think that both John and Sansa are incentivized to not take that main road since they're high profile targets? I guess so. I guess so. But take the back roads. You want to go back roads on this one. Hmm. You want to use you, you want to use your Waze app. You want to I don't know what the Waze app is in Westeros. Did but John that's what leave you on use. foot though? John, we don't know where John went. John might still be on at horse. Castle Black. Yeah, he might still be at Castle Black. All we know is that John handed over the cloak to Ed. Says my watch is over, and he walks away from that moment. But he didn't walk away from Castle Black in the episode. We still haven't seen the exit. Um, so I think that there's still more to do there. I think that John and Sansa are about to meet up. Hmm. I think that John, I think John and Sansa are together in the next episode. I'll plant that flag right now. But even if they did meet up, okay, so Sansa meets up with John. Now they have Brienne, John, Sansa, Podrick, all in the same place. Now what? Where do they go? Hell of a squad. They could wreck shit, just the four of them. Yes, absolutely. Great team. Great Final Fantasy party. What's the um, move? What's the move? The move... I don't know. I mean, I think that we know that Sansa, uh, you know, Sansa is somebody who's a little bit more politically savvy than John, perhaps, you know, has been through the King's Landing ringer, has been learning at the knee of Littlefinger over the past couple of seasons. Maybe they find their way to the Vale. Who knows? I mean, that feels like a weird use of the Jon Snow story right now. I don't know what the next move. I mean, as soon as they find out what's going on with Rickon, I feel like their next move is going to be fairly clear to them that it's like, okay, well, Let's make sure that we do something about this. And that really makes sense of why John would be going to Winterfell is knowing that one of his brothers is in trouble. How do they get that information? Just sort of like through the rumor mill? Yeah, through the grapevine. Because uh, somebody would have to say it to them. And I'm sure we're going to talk about Ramsey along the way. But it seems like that they have very different goals. I'm not really even sure what Sansa wants to do and what her goal is. I think her goal is just to get to John. Yeah. Safety. John is, uh, we don't know what his goals are, what he wants to do. Otherwise, he's just like, hey, I'm out. You know, screw you guys. And we, it'll be fun to see where that's going to go and what they need to do. We know more about like what John needs to do. It's like, obviously, okay, so you need to get this act together with the Night's King and we need dragons and stuff like that. But he has no idea about this. Do you want to talk about Winterfell? Yes. Let's talk about it since you brought it up. A lot of people are wondering about this scene that we got in this episode where small John Umber, he delivers Rickon Stark to Ramsey. Osha is there. We never really talked about the fact that Osha is back. Mm-hmm. Are you psyched that Osha is back in the mix? Mm. Survivor Dornio veteran. Yeah, I'm sort of indifferent on Osha. Take her or leave her. She was fine. You know, I liked it when uh, she duped Theon. That was good. Uh, I feel like this is not great news for Osha to be here. You know, I'm as worried for her as I am for Rickon. I think both of these guys are in big trouble. But a lot of people think that we shouldn't be so concerned. And we touched on this a little bit during the questions portion of the live show where people are speculating that this is a little bit of a ruse, Mm. that this isn't what it appears to be. Um, Alexander Chester wrote in 
Small John Umbers shows up with Rick on as a gift to Ramsey. Clearly, the Umbers are lying to Ramsey, and this is a plot to screw him over, right? I have a couple of reasons for this. That wolf head is half the size of Ghost's head, way too tiny to be Shaggy Dog, who was the biggest and fiercest of the direwolf pups. And the other thing is Small John's dad, Great John, was killed at the Red Wedding by Lord Bolton. Suddenly, Small John is going to align with Ramsay just because he's annoyed at Jon Snow for letting some wildlings into his neighborhood. This completely contradicts the reasoning that Harold gave last episode for why the Karstarks would support the Boltons. So what do you think about this, Rob? Are you getting your tinfoil or valerian foil hat on and really thinking about why the Umbers might be screwing over the Boltons, or are you taking this as pretty straightforward? Well, I think this is one of Chester's better theories. Seems like he's onto something for the people who might not have that sort of memory, and I would not have remembered that the Umbers were part of what went down at the Red Wedding. Could you sort of just give that backstory? Well, I actually don't think that the Great John is on the show anymore after season one, which was disappointing. Uh, And I think that, you know, you assume that he is killed in battle or in the Red Wedding, maybe in the Red Wedding. I don't have the details specific in my mind. I know in the book he is taken captive uh, and has not been seen since the Red Wedding. So either way, the Umbers are... Not in on the Red Wedding. They are victims of the Red Wedding and have every reason to not be totally pumped at what the Boltons did there. And I think that you absolutely get that on the show, even if it's straight up, even if Small John is totally throwing in with Ramsey's lot, because he's really highly offensive about Ramsey Bolton's late father. He's calling him words that I will not repeat. Uh, he is saying all sorts of stuff. He's refusing to bend the knee. And this is all in line with a guy who would be coming up to Ramsey and saying, I don't like you, I don't like your family, but the times they have changed and I need to align with the power players here in the North, especially because wildlings are here. I think you could see that at face value and it's certainly punctuated by the fact that he is delivering a Stark and a Stark's direwolf's severed head to a total psychopath in Ramsey Bolton. That seems like a curious decision for somebody who is, you know, putting together this long con against the Boltons. Yeah, what's the play here? You know, and I think that that's something that even even Alex Chester points out is the only challenge to this, to this theory is why would Small John give Rick on Ramsey risking Rick on's life? But I think the fact that Small John refuses to take an oath is telling. He blames it on oaths not meaning anything to the Boltons, but oaths are really important to true Northerners like the Starks and the Umbers. Small John won't take a false oath, but he needs some way to get Ramsey to trust him. So I think that's why he offers Rick and so I can I can see that, but I also I'm like. It's so dangerous to put, you know, the, one of the last living Starks with known whereabouts in the hands of Ramsey Bolton, proven psychopath. Seems like a really dubious choice. I don't know what the end game is, but I think that definitely a lot of the listeners are feeling very suspicious about Small John. Yeah, I think that Not they're... Not to be confused with Little John. No. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's how I thought. I didn't realize you meant the rapper. I thought you meant someone we talked about earlier in this feedback show um (laughs) yeah i I don't know i I like (laughs) yeah i like the theory i think it's fun i think it's definitely something we need to be watching you know watch those small john scenes coming forward uh pay attention to the rickon story everything that's going on there and watch it through two different lenses you know watch it through the lens that it's straight up betrayal that rickon has been betrayed and watch it through the lens of Rickon and the others are, you know, pulling one over. Uh, And let's see what we get, and maybe we'll develop that theory a little bit more. This is from Paul Kane. 
Every time a direwolf dies, I freak out, yell obscenities, and then lose it. Sounds like you lost it already. People are really uh, upset about the dire wolves. Yeah. Assuming that was really Shaggy Dog's head, what does his death mean for Rickon? Are the Stark's fates tied to their wolves? What is their symbolism? Obviously, Sansa has been without Lady for most of the series, but does that mean she's doomed to die before all is said and done? Ghost, Nymeria, and Summer are the only dire wolves still alive. Um, so what do you think about that? Do you think that the death of a dire wolf guarantees the death of a Stark. I don't think that there is like any sort of voodoo doll type relationship between a Stark and their dire wolf. I think that they're sort of there to be their protector. I think sure. I mean, the- it, I mean it less about that and more symbolically, like if a dire wolf dies, is that foreshadowing that the owner of that dire wolf is also not going to make it? I don't think so because we saw Sansa's dire wolf die in season one and she's still alive in season six. So I think that right. that's and probably that's, a big problem. And that's Paul's point is, does this mean that before all is said and done, we're going to lose Sansa? Look, eventually all these characters are going to die. And maybe (laughs) not during the time of the story, but, you know, they're not going to be immortal. So eventually the direwolves will die. They will die. But I don't think it's like, oh, she'll definitely die by, you know, the end of the seventh book because her direwolf died in the first book. Fair enough. Uh, I don't I don't know where I land on that yet. Um, But I mean, there are only three left at this point, assuming that Shaggy Dog is indeed dead. Summer's still out there. Ghost is with John. Nymeria is who knows where. Hopefully we'll see her again. Arya's direwolf not seen since the first season. We need to breed um, more direwolves. Breed more direwolves. That's probably true. They are an endangered species. Mm-hmm. We're gonna want to. We're gonna want to take care of that. All right. Let's uh, let's talk about another Stark. Let's talk about Bran. Uh, this was a really Boy. really great really great scene. Really exciting scene. Let's take this voicemail from Jeff from Ontario because I think that this is the biggest ticket item from this Tower of Joy scene that I think we really need to start drilling down into. Hey, Rob and Josh. This is Jeff from Midland, Ontario, Canada. Um, one of the most shocking things about this episode to me was how young Ned Stark could hear Bran Stark talking. Uh, do you think Bran Stark can use this ability in the future to change the past? And if so, do you think the consequences will be positive or negative? Good job on the podcast, guys. Love it. And hope that Jeff is doing okay with the ongoing fire situation in Ontario. All right. So let's, well, let's talk about what Jeff brought up. Um, the, the fact that Bran is able to call out to his dad in the past. What are you making of this? What is your takeaway from that moment, Rob? I don't know. I don't really know exactly what it's going to be. I know a lot of people are starting to get on board with some sort of time travel, potential paradox uh, on the horizon. I don't know necessarily if we're going that far down the rabbit hole. I mean, that feels like a big new thing to sort of introduce here six seasons into Game of Thrones where Bran is going to be able to go back and give pertinent information to people in the past. Right. I think for Bran to be going back in time to like go back to Winterfell to try and stop Jamie Lannister from pushing a young version of Bran Stark out a window and thereby crippling him for the rest of, the, of his life. I feel like that's a different show. Mm-hmm. You know, I just like, I don't, and, and being successful in that, like that is not game of Thrones. I don't think that anything like that is going to happen. I don't think that we're going to fracture the timeline. I don't think we're going to go back in time and change everything. But I do think, um, that this opens up some other interesting opportunities. And I think that, you know, it's instructive to look at what the three eyed Raven says to Bran. He says the past is already written and the ink is already dry. 
which uh, is, you know, it's the lost, it's the version of lost time travel rules, whatever happened, happened. Uh, and under those rules, basically, you, would, you can go back in time, you can interact with the past, but if you do something in the past, that thing that has happened in the past because of you always happened. This was always inevitably going to be a thing. Like, if you went back in time and, uh, you know, decided to, you know, serve somebody strawberry ice cream or something, and that person was always going to get the strawberry ice cream because you gave it to them. Something weird like that. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's a bad example. Uh, But basically, that these, you know, these time travel mechanics, people going back in time and having some sort of influence on the past is just the way that history was always going to go. Why'd they go back the first time? Well, we don't need to get down. (laughs) I'm not prepared to go that far down the rabbit hole uh, because the three-eyed raven told me so. Okay. Um, But I I think when you see Bran calling out to Ned and Ned turns around and doesn't see anything but obviously heard something, you know, whether it's a wind, you know, wind blowing some leaves around or whatever, or if he heard someone straight up say, father, um, that happened. I believe that that's what we're supposed to take from it is that it happened. And if that happened and Bran is now just becoming aware of his ability to do stuff like that, then what else has Bran done and is going to do, but has already done in the past? Does that make sense? Yes. You're saying that it always happened this way and Bran isn't changing anything. Right. So I think that that might be a direction that we're going into is I think that we could see that there are moments in the past of Westeros that Bran has always been involved in and is about to become involved in in his present. Uh, I think that, you know, it's no it. This is not on the show arbitrarily. And the look of terror on the three eyed Raven's face is palpable when he sees what Bran is doing with Ned Stark, that he is able to call out to Ned. And I think that you don't just have that on the show unless there's going to be some major ramifications of that type of power. I think paradoxical timelines is too left of center for Game of Thrones. I think that's too Mm -hmm. sci-fi. But George R. R. Martin is like a noted, until the end of it, was a noted Lost fan. So I wouldn't be surprised if he was into the whatever happened happened thing and there is a little bit of that baked into the story here. Well, let me uh, float something past you. And there's been a lot of like Game of Thrones theory reported like in the news like I follow Mashable they're always tweeting out and actually I saw they wrote an article uh, where they heavily referenced uh, your latest interview with Isaac Hempstead Wright Uh, but I think that they had posted an article recently about a theory where Bran talks to the Mad King and that's what makes him go insane are you buying that because that seems a real out of nowhere things for Bran to start exploring. Well, I think, you know, if Bran is going down this time travel rabbit hole and seeing a lot of Robert's rebellion and seeing a lot of what happens to Ned, maybe you could see him being like, Oh, well, what if I go back and prevent this rebellion from ever happening? And I tell the mad King heiress not to go crazy and not to do all of this and do all of that. Uh, I could see, I could see it. Like I see, I see the argument for it. I do think that that's a little bit of a stretch, but I think that kind of thing I think is possible. And you know, the, 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 the yeah. idea of brand going back to a moment. I reject that. I, re- I reject that we're going to go into that. First off, that brand would at, at that point is preventing his own birth because that isn't, isn't his mom, isn't Catelyn scheduled to be betrothed to Ned's brother, 
who ends up dying during this whole Roberts Rebellion? I mean, I don't know that Bran is thinking necessarily as hard about it as you. I think that he is a 17-year-old kid who could make an impulsive choice uh, and, you know, go back and try to do something good without really thinking through the consequences. That seems to me to be the story of a person with unspeakable power but no real grasp for how powerful it is. But just for him to be the cause of the Mad King's insanity... I just feel like that. How many times would he have to go back and talk to King Ares before he's like, oh my God, I've lost my mind because of yeah, this. I, like, don't, I mean, I, I don't want to get that hung up in that particular theory because I'm not like super into that one specifically. But I think that what we should expect, or at least what I'm expecting at this point, is Bran tripping back in time at some point, having some sort of mark in the past uh, that is going to have always happened, and he is going to have had some role to play in it, whether it's minor or major, and whatever it is, who really knows? But something like that, something like what you're talking about with the Mad King, and I think that it could be, you know, less about somebody sees and meets and speaks with Bran, you know, specifically. I think that it's instructive to look at the Ned Stark scene and see how it looks like he is just seeing nothing in the wind. But nothing in the wind, if utilized correctly, could be something very important. You know, a rustling of the leaves at the exact right time could cause somebody to either dodge a sword swing or get impaled by something. So I think that there are still possibilities for Bran going back, messing around in time, things that had always happened, and that is going to be a catalyst for moving things forward in the future. I think that we'll see something like that, but I don't think it's going to be as monumental as that Bran is the one who caused everything to go in this certain direction. This is from John Rumsey, just to flip the scene on its head a little bit. He says, are we to take Bran's visions as completely true, or could they be distorted versions of the past? I think Ned possibly hearing Bran shows it could be the real past like you touched on during the show, However, I could also see that the Three-Eyed Raven would be showing a version of the past that helps his larger purpose, whatever that could be. Either way, I'm excited for the ride and love the possibilities it brings. So what do you think? Is it possible that this is just visions, that these are not actual instances of the past? It's not that Bran and the Three-Eyed Raven are traveling back to that moment, but the Three-Eyed Raven is instead essentially taking Bran to the danger room. Taking him to some sort of a projection and what he's seeing may not have actually been as they occurred. Uh, well, I wasn't thinking about it like that, but, um, you know, maybe, you know, it could be a distorted. I mean, listen, if you want to be nervous about the Three-Eyed Raven, I think that that might be a possible read. This is from Ali B. I feel uneasy that the Raven showed Bran that Ned lied about the fight. What is the Raven's aim? If he can pick and choose what Bran sees, Bran could be misled. I don't know how much I trust this guy. I mean, I felt like from what we saw on the screen, it was that he was seeing what actually did happen. And I think the fact that it didn't happen exactly as Bran thought it did spoke to the fact that it was the right version, even the Isaac Hempstead right version. So <laughs> I, I think that he really was there. I, I, I'm buying. I think so too. I think so too. I'm buying it as well. I think it's, you know, a possibility worth chewing on. I'm all in on the fact that he's in the past and he's seeing the right stuff. Mm-hmm. The Isaac Hempstead right stuff. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's talk about yet another Stark sibling. Really huge night for the Starks. This whole season has been bounce back season. Bounce back season. All right. Let's talk about Arya. Arya has her sight back. Are you excited about this? Yes. This is good. I'm excited because I was tired of watching a blind girl get her ass beaten every week. <laughs> every single week. Yeah. Uh, so from Danielle Klug, this is about Arya. So what will happen to Arya when she officially becomes a faceless woman? She's currently no one. When she's done, does she go by the name Arya Stark? 
Stark, or does she assume a new name to go with her new face? Does she have a mission from the many-faced god, or does she just go wandering about the countryside until she finds someone to help? Um, what do you think? What's Arya's next move now that her sight has been returned, now that she seems closer to graduation, if not fully graduated? What is Arya's next move? To me, I felt like that she has to get back involved with the story, but maybe her interests are mutually aligned with the greater interests of the Starks, where she has to go after somebody who is also like, could she potentially have a mission that involves taking out somebody who's on her list? Or somebody else who's important in Westeros, whether or not it's the list. And I think um, this from Jeff Probst is interesting about Arya's list because we noted that Arya's list is shorter now than it once was and not because everyone on the list is dead. Uh, Jeff wrote in, does Arya's truncated kill list mean she's actually forgetting her vendettas and becoming no one? Is this a possible subversion of the hero's revenge trope? Um, so do you think that there is something to the idea that Arya actually might be taking this faceless thing seriously and actually forgetting a little bit about, you know, her grudges, you know, obviously still knowing that that stuff happened, but moving on from it and choosing to become something different. I do think that Arya is pretty well invested in uh, the faceless man, faceless woman bit at this point. And I think that maybe she is starting to forget really her then we, we're not seeing her even when she's blind sitting there like saying the names and stuff like that so maybe uh, this whole going blind thing maybe was a real wake-up call for aria that would be great that would be really great i mean it's kind of amazing to say that like the happy ending for aria stark would be becoming a faceless assassin uh but she'd be going around and doing this stuff without like a real personal motive you know without real grudges you know going around and doing this as you know kind of like uh calling the herd and taking out the bad people because that's just the way of death and really being an instrument of that and not being personally invested rather than being, you know, the murder monster that we saw her as against Marin Trant where that was like pure dark hearted Arya. I feel like becoming an actual faceless man would be really great for Arya Stark. Yeah, because they're sort of on a mission. It's not like a vengeance kill. They're killing people for seemingly a good reason so I think that it might not be the worst thing in the world for her. Yeah, might not be the worst thing in the world. This is interesting. This is from Rusty Shackelford, who says, what do you make of Arya and Arya 2 spending several lines of dialogue on the Hound? We never saw him die, and this seems like the writer's dropping hints. Who else could defeat the Franken Mountain? Were you paying attention, Rob, to the fact that Sandor Clegane got name-dropped a little bit here in this Arya scene? I was paying attention, and... I feel like that it was interesting. I mean, I'm having a hard time finding the scenario where the hound did not die. I mean, is it possible that he could have been discovered by, say, like a Beric Dondarrion? And could we eventually, we never got to see the real payoff between the mountain versus the hound. Is it possible that the zombie incarnations of the mountain and the hound could square off at some point? Oh my God, zombie hound? Is that possible? I mean, that how, would be amazing. How did be the incredible. hound not die? I mean, he was really left for dead. I can't imagine that he, he was begging for death 
How did right. he rebound from that? Well, I think that, you know, you said it. He's left for dead. We don't see him die. And I think it's always important in fiction when you don't see the dead body, you always got to be a little bit skeptical, or often you do. Um, and I think that there's reason to be skeptical about Sandra Coglain's death playing out the way that we thought it did. Um, I think that with the mountain being as important as he is on the show this season, it would be really poetic to see the Hound go up against that guy. I know that a lot of fans have had a lot of theories about the Hound coming back and being a participant in some sort of battle, some sort of bowl against uh, Gregor Clegane, if you will. Whether or not we see that on the show, who knows? But I think that a lot of people would really like to see the Hound back in the mix. And it was interesting that the show was dropping it. Um, I don't know if that's where we're driving toward, but something to pay attention to for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that that would be a very fun thing to have him sort of be able to uh, pick up that torch and go with. Yeah, Zombie Hound would be great. All right, let's talk very briefly about Daenerys Targaryen, who is dealing with some stuff, about to pledge Doge Kaleen. Um, let's take this from Danielle, who says, How was Daenerys supposed to know that she was supposed to join the Doge Kaleen? No one had told her about it, although she did have more important things to do. Would the widows have been more welcoming if she had come right after Khal Drogo died, or would she still have to face this council? Um, do you think that Danny would be having an easier time if right after Drogo died, she just went straight to Vyas Dothrak? It was like, all right, I'm here. Uh, put me up. Give me a sweet room, please. Yeah, this does seem like a little bit like revisionist history that none of the Dothraki that Danny was with at the end of season one when Khal Drogo died were like, all right, okay, well, I hate to bring this up now, but Danny, really, if we're going to play this by the book, as the widow of a deceased call, you need to head off to the call's widow retirement home. I'm sorry. Uh And Danny was like, oh, hell no. I'm not doing that. No way. No how. You can't make me go where I don't want to go. Or did they actually fail to tell her this? Um, well, I mean, like her original Dothraki crew, aren't they all gone at this point? But they Didn't, weren't gone. So you think they weren't gone should... at the time? I'm I'm suggesting that maybe they sucked. Throw them under the bus? <laughs> you think yeah. maybe? And like the handmaiden betrayed her, and you know, it was like these were just not great without Call Drogo, and they probably were all just like, I don't know what to do. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what you're supposed to do now. Yeah, you've got dragons. I'm kind of into that. Uh, so, yeah, I think that, you know, there might be something the idea that just like no one really told her what to do. But I think that in the she's scene, not going to say that to them. It was like, I would have come if I would have known <laughs> if I I d- didn't know that I was invited. If I knew I'd be here, <laughs> I'd be here. I didn't. I, my invitation got lost in the mail. I don't think she's going to go ahead and tell anybody that that she's not going to throw people under the bus. She is here for how many more episodes? Danny? In, yeah. Oh, you're talking about in the retirement home, not yeah. like with us on the show. No, no. With <laughs> us on the show, she's endgame for yes. sure. If we don't get a conclusion to this story by the end of this episode, episode four, I think people are going to be starting to get really frustrated. Yeah, I I mean, I will raise my hand and count myself among the frustrated unless they're telling a really great, compelling story in there. Um, but it's time like we're these seasons are short, 10 episodes per season. We are entering episode four. Uh, we are close to the halfway mark we're not quite there yet but we're getting there faster than you think these seasons fly by and for danny to not only not be in westeros yet but to be not even within striking distance of resolving the situation in Meereen by like episode eight would be 
astronomically frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, they re- I, I really think we got to start wrapping this one up. And it looks like we're in a position to do it. Uh, previews suggest that Jorah and Dario are close by. Uh, so hopefully this is going to get wrapped up pretty soon. Uh, but, you know, as with all things, Danny tends to be a slow burn unless the dragons are involved, in which case it's a very fast burn. Any sign of Drogon? Not yet. Hmm. He'll show up when he wants to show up. I guess so. What's he doing? Yeah. Chilling. He's just chilling, hanging out. E- eating lambs or rams, depending on whether you thought that was a lamb or a ram. <laughs> I think that Jorah said it was a ram, right? I know, but I think Dario disagreed with him. It's like, goat? <laughs> it's like, is that a goat? And no. Jorah's like, ram. Ram. It's like, I don't know about that, Jorah. I feel like they're still talking about that. All right, let's take uh, a couple more quick questions. This is once again from Jif Prost. Moving on to King's Landing. I know Rob doesn't like the High Sparrow, no. but isn't it refreshing to have a villain motivated by something other than bloodlust or straight-up psychopathy? It's a nice change of pace from all the Sand Snakes and Ramses in Westeros. What would it take for the Sparrow to win you over? Will you come around on him if he releases your girl Marjorie next week? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, good memory that I'm a big Marjorie fan. Yes. I, I would have to say that other than the Sparrow just leaving Westeros, there's nothing that he could do in terms <laughs> of winning me over. I, I mean, yeah. it, it's he's just really just become like molasses in this King's Landing storyline. Yeah, he really has. Uh, but I, I think that whatever's going to happen in King's Landing could be really interesting in terms of how Cersei chooses to play the cards. You know, she really seems to be, you know, we saw it in this episode. It was really a cool moment, I thought, where she says, we don't need Sir Gregor to kill lots of people. We need him to kill one person. She wants to go trial by combat. And we also know from the High Sparrow scene that the High Sparrow and the Faith are not done with Cersei. She is not all the way atoned. So something is going to give there. And I think that we are being pretty much guaranteed some sort of trial by combat situation at some point this season. Yeah, it seems to me like that's where it's going. I mean, just to drill down a little bit further on that, to me, King's Landing used to always just be about power, political intrigue, sex. It had it all. And now right. here comes the High Sparrow. He's like, oh, no, none of those things anymore. Right. right. Confess. Yeah. Confess. 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 In fairness, that's Septuanella. Yeah, you know? but she's getting her marching orders from sure. the High Sparrow. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly. Listen, it was a different time, you know? Uh, Wet Blanket that's when- Sparrow. <laughs> Wet Blanket Sparrow? Yeah. That's a bad hashtag if that's what you were going for. I don't think that's going to catch fire, I don't think it's gonna especially because it's wet. Like the High Sparrow. Yeah. Uh, I think that, you know, it was a different time. It was, you know, King's Landing used to be a party. Now people, you know, the parents have come home. All right, kids, lights out. We're in charge now. And we'll see how long that plays or even if there is a King's Landing still standing by the end of the season or by the end of the series. I really think that that's probably the big tension right now is these two power structures are rubbing right up against each other in a really bad way. Yikes. Uh, and I think that, you know, it's it's got the possibility to burn this city to the ground. King's Landing has caught fire before. It happened before the show began, granted, but it has happened where King's Landing has been sacked. And I would not be surprised to see history repeat itself, especially given the political climate there right now. And I think that that's what's really interesting about King's Landing to me and the High Sparrow story. And now that really does mirror a lot of what's going on in the real world right now, as you said, kind of very prescient of the story to be having a lot of this sort of like the 99% versus the 1% mm-hmm. on Game of Thrones. And I think it's a compelling story. 
So I like the High Sparrow's presence. I like him as a character and what he represents. I do think that he is an interesting kind of villain and someone who's unique to the show, somebody that we don't really have on the show um, other than him and haven't had before. Where it's going is really where it's going to matter for me. Like what the payoff is is going to justify whether or not it was worth spending all this time on this character. Well, what do you see as being the ultimate resolution of the High Sparrow? And, you know, on paper... Sure, he does seem as though he, in a lot of ways, is like Danny. He wants to sort of give the power back to the people. But I do think that his character is a bit of a bastardization of what Danny is actually trying to do. So how do we get out from under his reign of tyranny? Uh, Tyranny? No, I wish. (laughs) How do we get out from under the high sparrow's reign of tyranny? Well, I, as I just said, like, I think that there's probably not going to be any getting out from under it, but I don't think that he's going to be necessarily the benefactor of it as well. Um, my prediction is that King's Landing is in shambles before much longer. And a lot of these power structures that we've seen, these, you know, conflicts mm-hmm. between Tyrells and Lannisters and what have you's and the High Sparrow, that a lot of that is not going to matter, certainly in the face of White Walkers, if the White Walkers get that far. But I think even without any further assist from the White Walkers, I think these guys are going to take care of each other on their own. And all of this tugging of war, you know, all of this pushing and pulling is just going to result in a lot of severed limbs rather than anybody winning over the rope. Do you think we're going to have just like some sort of like French Revolution and they're just going to like overthrow whatever monarchy is in place? Yeah, but I think that whoever overthrew it is not going to be in any sort of like structured position of power. I think it's just going to be chaos. And Littlefinger loves that, so that might be good for him to clean up at some point if he makes it out of there alive. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think that in terms of anybody who is in a position of power in that story right now, I have always thought that they will all fail. Uh, and And I think that this could be the season where that happens, if it ever happens. Okay. All right, let's take one last voicemail. This is from Omri from Jerusalem who wants to talk about something that might be really, really great news. Hey, Robin, Josh, how are you? This is Omi from Jerusalem, first of my name. Quick question, do you think that Gilly, when she said that Sam was the father of a child, didn't actually mean little Sam, but meant that she was pregnant? I know what Sam would say about that. Oh, my. Wow. Oh, my, indeed. What about that, Rob? We really just kind of snoozed past that one. We talked about how do we need that Sam story in this episode? Can't we spend more time on Jon Snow? What if we snoozed on the idea that Samuel Tarly is about to become a father to Gilly's second child? Hmm. I did not take it. And that's it why he's that. puking because he's like, oh, God. Yeah. Ah, he has morning sickness, it. sympathy I'm morning afraid. sickness. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Is that real? Does that happen? <laughs> I don't I think don't know. so. No. Yeah. Uh, I didn't get that. I didn't feel like that that was what they were saying because they did cut to a shot of little Sam, uh, the baby I'm talking about. At that Stop. moment, at that moment after it happened. So did you get that read? Do you think that that is that Sam has impregnated Gilly? No, I didn't get that read until Omri from Jerusalem told me that that might be what's going on. And I wish nothing but the best for Sam and Gilly in that regard. So do you think that that's the case? No, I don't. I don't think so. I think that it's just little Sam. And I think it's symbolically he's his father and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it'd be nice. Yeah. Listen, it would be nice to have a little bit of uh, joy in this world. Tower of joy? Other than the tower. Yeah. (laughs) It was great to have a little bit of tower of joy in this world. A little bit of the tower of joy. And hopefully uh, we see more about that soon, but it doesn't see, I feel like we're not getting it this week. 
Uh, maybe not this week. Uh, we'll definitely, you know, there are shoes to drop in that storyline, obviously. Uh, you, you can look anywhere on the internet and see that. But I think uh, we'll get that this season for sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right, uh, Josh, anything else you want to touch on from this week? No, the, we covered a lot. Uh, good stuff. And sorry for starting us off on such an awkward note. Yeah. Uh, do you have anything in terms of this Sunday night episode for, uh, do you have any sort of a sense of what we're going to be exploring? No, not really. A little, you know, it's a little bit murkier right now. Um, it's called Book of the Stranger. We know what the stranger is. That's the god of death in the faith of the seven. And according to the house of black and white and the faceless men there, the stranger is just one of the many names for the many faced god. So I would expect a good house of black and white story. I would expect a good story in King's Landing with the faith militant. There's some interesting stuff in the preview for this episode where Cersei and Lady Elena are kind of talking about Marjorie's fate and saying um, Marjorie is close to atoning. And uh, if, the, if she does that, that probably like, it seems like they're suggesting that Marjorie might do a walk of shame on her own. And Lady Elena is saying that cannot happen. And Cersei says, I agree. So I think the immediate implication is, is some sort of alliance brewing between the queen of thorns and the queen regent of King's landing. And I would say, no, it's not. I bet the other shoe that drops is Cersei is going to make a challenge for trial by combat. And I think that we're going to get that on Sunday night. That's my prediction. Who would the trial by combat be between? So obviously we have the Cersei Lannister side, but is she fighting and would it be uh, Robert Strong would be fighting a representative from the Faith Militant? Yeah, I think Robert Strong just like picks up Lancel Lannister and rips him in half like the Queen Alien against Bishop at the end of Aliens. And it would be Lancel Lannister? You think that that's where we're going? I just think that would be satisfying. Okay. I mean, is it possible? Like, uh, is there any other dark horse contender that the Faith Militant uh, could pull out of the woodwork? Like, say, that's why. Yeah, that's why people, you know, people say, like, can we get the hound in there? You know, who knows that there's a lot of gymnastics involved to make that happen. Laura Sorrell, possibly. Yeah, because he's in the clutches of the High Sparrow. Maybe he's like some sort of like, uh, okay, parole. uh, I'll fight the, (laughs) I'll fight Robert Strong for you. If I die, I die. And if I win, then maybe, you know, you release me and Marjorie. Right. And I mean, that would have some great circularity as well, uh, because one of the first times, if not the first time we meet Laura Sorrell, isn't it when he is jousting against Gregor Clegane and the mountain chops off his own horse's head and then nearly chops Sir Loris in half. And then the hound interferes from out of nowhere and saves Sir Loris. Is that how we get the hound back on the show that he shows up here now in the middle of some trial by combat and jumps into the ring much like Ron Burgundy into the bear pit <laughs> and he saves Loris once again and regrets it right away and instantly <laughs> yeah uh, possible who knows who knows that'd be fun I yeah. like that okay uh, lots of fun stuff to come only seven episodes left in Game of Thrones season six still a lot of way to stick out A lot more to go, but it is flying. You got to appreciate it while you have it. All right. Uh, Josh, what's the hashtag today? Oh, man. You have any good ones? I've got a couple of different options. Uh, Gap year. Got uh, (laughs) resting Ollie face. Uh, (laughs) The Isaac Hempstead Wright stuff. I liked that. It's a little long. (laughs) The IHRS or is IHWS? 
I H W S. Uh, yeah, I guess that works. Okay, I H W S. Well, I-H-W-S. not wet blanket sparrow. That's not. Oh, wet on. blanket sparrow. You know what? Let's let's let it catch on. Let's see if it catches on. Let's go with hashtag wet blanket sparrow. Let's see if people like it. Okay. All right. So from here, Josh, you and Terry Schwartz are going to be getting together to be talking about the Game of Thrones book club. Correct. Then you and I will be back together on Sunday night for episode four's recap, Book of the Stranger. Yes. Correct. Yeah. And if you don't want to miss any of that, you want to make sure you subscribe to the podcast, go to postshowrecaps.com slash G-O-T iTunes. And we do appreciate your feedback and stark ratings in the iTunes store because it helps more and more people find the show. Awesome. Very excited about it. Really loving this season. Really fun stuff to talk about and have been really enjoying the interaction with everybody. It's been great for the podcast. It's been really fun to get you guys all on this feedback. It's show. Very, very fun all along the way this season of course if you're a fan of mr robot or are becoming a fan of mr robot to get ready for season two josh wiggler and antonio mazzaro have mr robot weekly recaps going through all of season one yeah it's been real been really fun we're doing that spoiler free and spoiler filled so there's plenty of warning for people who have not seen the show before and you can just listen to about an hour of commentary in this first podcast that we did we're recording our second one in a couple of days Really fun. Mr. Robot's an awesome show, and you will have plenty of time to catch up before it comes back for season two on July 13th. And if Mr. Robot existed on Game of Thrones, he would be called Maester Robot. <laughs> All right. Well struck, Josh. Well struck. Not impossible. Not and impossible. then also, of course, uh, our Fear of the Walking Dead uh, recaps continue on Alex Kidwell and I recap episode five of the latest season. You can check that out as well on post show recaps. All right, so looking forward to hearing what you guys have to say on postshowrecaps.com in the comments. We'll be back with the Game of Thrones book club with Josh and Terry coming up next. Take care, everybody.